Please turn to 2 Samuel chapter 13. Over the past uh, couple of years, we've been doing an extended series in 1 and 2 Samuel, and we're going to pick up today at chapter 13, verse 19. This is following the sordid uh, tale of the uh, rape of Tamar by her brother. Then Tamar put ashes on her head and tore her robe of many colors that was on her and laid her hand on her head and went away crying bitterly. And Absalom, her brother, said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? But now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this thing to heart. So Tamar remained desolate in her brother Absalom's house. But when King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. And Absalom spoke to his brother Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had forced his sister Tamar. And it came to pass, after two full years, that Absalom had sheep shearers in Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim. So Absalom invited all the king's sons. Then Absalom came to the king and said, Kindly note, your servant has sheep shearers. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go now, lest we be a burden to you. Then he urged him, but he would not go, and he blessed him. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom urged him, so he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Now Absalom had commanded his servants, saying, Watch now, when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, when I say to you, Strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not be afraid. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, and each one got on his mule and fled. And it came to pass while they were on the way that news came to David, saying, Absalom has killed all the king's sons, and not one of them is left. So the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the ground, and all his servants stood by with their clothes torn. Then Jonadab, the son of Shemiah, David's brother, answered and said, Let not my lord suppose they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for only Amnon is dead. For by the command of Absalom this has been determined from the day that he forced his sister Tamar. Now therefore let not my lord the king take the thing to his heart to think that all the king's sons are dead, for only Amnon is dead. Then Absalom fled, and the young man who was keeping watch lifted his eyes and looked, and there many people were coming from the road on the hillside behind him. And Jonadab said to the king, Look, the king's sons are coming, as your servant said, so it is. So it was, as soon as he had finished speaking, that the king's sons indeed came, and they lifted up their voice and wept. Also the king and all his servants wept very bitterly. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amihud, king of Geshur, and David mourned for his son every day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And King David longed to go to Absalom, for he had been comforted concerning Amnon, because he was dead. Amen. Father, we thank you for this, your word, and we pray that uh, you would be exalted on our responses to this word by your spirit enable us to grow sanctify us by your truth your word is truth and we love it father and we continue to worship in jesus name amen 
few weeks ago, I shared the story of C.L. Culpepper, a missionary in China in the 1920s, and how God had brought a profound conviction of his pride and some of his other sins. And as he confessed his sins to some of his fellow workers, God sovereignly moved in their hearts and produced what has become known as the Shantung Revival. And let me tell you about one of Culpepper's close friends, Wiley B. Glass, during that same revival. Glass was a very, very uh, well-respected missionary, but unknown to others, he had a deep root of bitterness in his heart. And as Glass uh, sat in the prayer meetings, uh, there was a man's face that kept being brought uh, before him, and God was convicting Glass about his ungodly attitudes toward that man. But because this is incident that he was reminded of it happened so many years before he just tried to put that aside brush it aside but he could not and his resistance to the holy spirit's promptings were making him absolutely miserable at one point he begged Culpepper to pray for him but because he was so ashamed of his ungodly attitudes uh, he didn't tell Culpepper what this was about Culpepper said he was pale as death and kept groaning in his anxiety I prayed with him and for him several times during that day and the next. In the evening of the second day, he came running to me and threw his arms around me. Charlie, it's gone. I said, what's gone? He replied, that old root of bitterness. And in his book, Culpepper summarizes what Glass told him that day. Culpepper writes, he told me that 30 years earlier, and just just imagine that, Uh, How long we can hold on to things uh, and uh, just not allow them to be put under the blood of Christ. But anyway, he said, 30 years earlier, before he came to China, a man had insulted his wife. The insult had made him so angry, he felt like he could kill the man if he ever saw him again. Now keep that in mind when we look at Absalom's uh, murder. Culpepper goes on. He realized a cold servant of God should not feel that way, and it bothered him for years. Finally, he just turned the man over to God. When the Holy Spirit began working in his heart during that week, the question came, Are you willing for that man to be saved? He answered, Lord, I'm willing for you to save him. Just keep him on the other side of heaven. (laughs) Finally, he came to the place where he said, Lord, if that man is alive and if I can find him, When I go on furlough, I will confess my hatred to him and do my best to win him to you. When he reached that decision, the Lord released the joys of heaven to his soul, and he was filled with love and peace. He became a more effective preacher for the Lord, and during the next few years, he led hundreds to Christ. And that ends the quote. But I'm starting with that story because... It may seem hard to believe that any regenerate person could possibly have attitudes and actions like Absalom had in this uh, chapter, Uh, but they can. And I'm not going to settle the question of whether Absalom was regenerate or uh, not regenerate. It really doesn't matter. That's not the point here, because the same principles that we're going to be looking at in this chapter are principles that govern the bitterness of true believers like Sarah, Abraham's wife. Joseph's brothers, Naomi, Hannah, Jonah, the prodigal son's brothers, and many other people. And each one of those stories really illustrates the truth of the title of today's sermon, that bitter is not better. 
And I'm not going to look at every verse like I normally do. Instead, what I'm going to do, I want to look at seven general principles uh, related to bitterness that are illustrated in this passage. And the first principle is that there really are usually pretty good reasons for people to be bitter. Uh, If you want to argue with the Holy Spirit this morning, I'm sure you can come up with all kinds of good reasons as to why you have the right to be bitter. Uh, Sarah had a good reason for her bitterness against uh, Hagar, given the uh, the way that Hagar taunted her and uh, had demeaning attitudes toward uh, Sarah in her childlessness. And even after Sarah had a child, the way that Ishmael persecuted, and that's the word that's used in Galatians, persecuted her son Isaac. Uh, She thought she had good reasons uh, for her uh, bitterness. Joseph's brothers had good reasons for their bitterness against Joseph, given the fact that the father uh, loved Joseph far more than he loved them. They longed for his love and for his approval. Uh, But the fact that they had reasons for their bitterness in no way made bitterness any less dangerous to their, their soul. Naomi had a good reason for her bitterness when she had lost her property And they had to immigrate to Moab, to a country where uh, they were second-class citizens. And then her husband died. Then her two sons died. It's just like life was not fair uh, to Naomi. In 1 Samuel 1, we discover that Hannah had good reasons for her bitterness against uh, her husband's other wife, Penina. I mean, she had to share her husband with another woman. She was childless. And the text says this, her rival also provoked her severely to make her miserable. Uh, Jonah had good reasons for his bitterness against the Assyrians. If you've studied any archaeology of the Assyrians, you know they were one of the most ruthless, uh, violent, sadistic peoples. Uh, They engaged in torture. They delighted in torture. They gave their kids uh, to, uh, uh, statues and, and different things that depicted torture, just a demonic culture. And we know from kings that the Assyrians had run over the town that Jonah lived in. And so it may very well have been that he witnessed firsthand the torture and the killing of some of his uh, friends and uh, some of his relatives. He probably thought, I have every right to be bitter. I have every right to wish that these people would go straight to hell. But it doesn't matter what the good reasons you have for being bitter. There is not a single story in the Bible that will show that being bitter will ever make you better. It always, always, always makes you worse. Hebrews says that it defiles you. It makes you spiritually ugly. It makes you utterly ineffective. And if godly people like Sarah and Jonah could be overcome by bitterness, you can be overcome by bitterness as well. If you, if you do not guard your heart. Now, despite the fact that Absalom had an eminently good reason to hate Amnon, to be bitter against Amnon, who had totally destroyed his sister's life, the text does not approve of his bitterness. Instead, it teaches us that bitterness always destroys, and if Absalom's reason for bitterness is not justified in the sight of God, then I would say you better stop rationalizing your bitterness that you are uh, holding in your heart. Uh, Let me just read without any comment verses 1 through 22 so that you can see why Absalom hated Amnon. Amnon was a a very wicked uh, young man, uh, just uh, very insensitive. He could care less about how his actions destroyed other people. Because I've preached on these verses already, uh, I'm just going to read them. After this, Absalom, the son of David, had a lovely sister whose name was Tamar. 
And Amnon, the son of David, loved her. And we saw the Hebrew word there dealt more with lust than it does uh, love. Amnon was so distressed over his sister, that, uh, Tamar, that he became sick, for she was a virgin, and it was improper for Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemiah, David's brother. Now, Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, Why are you, the king's son, becoming thinner day after day? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. So Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill, and when your father comes to see you, say to him, Please let my sister Tamar come and give me food and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. And Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let Tamar, my sister, come and make a couple of cakes for me in my sight that I may eat from her hand. And David sent home to Tamar, saying, Now go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, and he was lying down. Then she took flour and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and placed them out before him, but he refused to eat. Then Amnon said, Have everyone go out from me. And they all went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the bedroom that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes which she had made and brought them to Amnon, her brother, in the bedroom. Now, when she had brought them to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come, lie with me, my sister. But she answered him, No, my brother, do not force me, for no such thing should be done in Israel. Do not do this disgraceful thing. And I, where could I take my shame? And as for you, you would be like one of the fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. However, he would not heed her voice. And being stronger than she, he forced her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her exceedingly, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Arise, be gone. So she said to him, No, indeed, this evil of sending me away is worse than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. Then he called his servant who attended him and said, Here, put this woman out, away from me, and bolt the door behind her. Now she had on a robe of many colors, for the king's virgin daughters wore such apparel. And his servant put her out and bolted the door behind her. Then Tamar put ashes on her head and tore her robe of many colors that was on her and laid her hand on her head and went away, crying bitterly. And Absalom, her brother, said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? But now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this thing to heart. So Tamar remained desolate in her brother Absalom's house. But when King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. And Absalom spoke to his brother Amnon, neither good nor bad, Absalom hated Amnon because he had forced his sister Tamar. By refusing to deal with Amnon, David guaranteed that this sin would fester and that Amnon would continue to be a menace. By failing to counsel his daughter, Tamar, David helped her to be destroyed by her own bitterness and to become a desolate woman. He did not give her the tools of God's grace to be able to handle this tragedy that had happened to her. By failing to speak to any of his family about this, they kind of circled the wagons and just kept silent about it. What he did is he failed to uncover problems that were simmering under the surface in time uh, for them to be resolved. 
And as those problems simmered under the surface, bitterness began to defile many. And so if you are a parent who is ignoring bitterness in your children, I would urge you, don't overlook it. You've got to bring your children to the grace of God. Now back to our main point, when Colossians and Ephesians calls us to put away all anger, all malice, all hatred, all bitterness, it is not discounting the seriousness of the sins that have been done against you. Not at all. It's not saying your bitterness is surprising. The exact opposite is true. It's not surprising for pagans to become bitter, for sons of Adam to become bitter. No, when Scripture calls you to put away all anger, all malice, all hatred, all bitterness, what it is doing is it's telling you stop living in terms of the, the life and the powers of the old man, Adam, which has been crucified. Your old identity was crucified with Christ and start living in terms of the power of the new man, Jesus, the second Adam. <clears throat> you have a new identity and a new power that enables you to live above the reasons that drive the world. You can have joy when others have misery. You can have love where others would naturally have hatred. In fact, that's the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount is it's to undercut Phariseeism outside the church and inside the church and to tell people, look, if you only love those who love you, how are you any different than pagans are? You're not demonstrating your sonship. You're not demonstrating any of the grace that flows from heaven. If you bless those who bless you, he says, how are you different than the pagans? But when you can bless those who curse you, when you can do good to those who persecute you, when you can love those who hate you, you are demonstrating something that no pagan can possibly do because you're living in the realm of the supernatural. Jesus says that is what demonstrates sonship in the Sermon on the Mount. Because you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, there is no excuse for bitterness. When Colossians 3.9 tells husbands to love their wives and do not become bitter against your wives, he tells them exactly how to do it. He says, don't be seeking the things that following the principles of this world. Instead, seek those things which are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Day by day, what we need to be doing is praying, Lord, your will be done in my life more and more. Your kingdom come more and more in my life. I don't want to live in terms of this world. I want the kingdom of heaven to be manifested uh, here on earth. And so what he's doing is he's calling us to live in the realm of the supernatural, and you can. That's the whole point. God has predestined you to be conformed to the image of his Son. And the Son has accomplished everything you need in order to be so conformed. And you are indwelt by the God of this universe. The Holy Spirit within you gives you all of the reasons when they are conspiring together to enable you to live in the supernatural. You've got all the reasons you need to live uh, above. And, and they trump the reasons for your bitterness. Point two. If bitterness is not immediately confessed and put under the blood of Christ, it can linger and fester for years. And the story I started with of Culpepper, the uh, Culpepper's friend, it lingered for 30 years. Just remarkable how that bitterness never seems to evaporate. Verse 23, and it came to pass after two full years, two full years. Years. This shows that the American proverb that time heals all wounds is a lie. 
It is an absolute lie. Time does not automatically heal your wounds. Only God's grace can heal your wounds. And we need to be proactive in taking to the cross of Jesus Christ our wounds rather than nursing them. If you ignore the kinds of wounds that Tamar and Absalom felt, that you hope, hey, eventually they'll go away. You're deceiving yourself. Bitterness grows. It always grows, 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 grows if you are not crucifying it, if you are not killing it. The third thing that I see in this passage is that bitterness tends to lead to premeditated revenge. Now, people may not think that they are engaging in revenge, but they sure daydream about it. It may not be you know, thinking about killing somebody, but maybe wanting to kill their reputation, you know, destroy their job, or in some other way get even with that person. But they lie awake for hours sometime at night uh, thinking through, oh boy, if I had said it this way, that would put them in their place. And just relishing the expression they see on that other person's faces, they really get them good. By relishing those thoughts, they are feeding the monster of bitterness. In this chapter, Absalom planned to kill Amnon when he got a chance, and it was just one step further than the missionary Glass that we looked at earlier who just wished that he could kill that man, okay? Verses 23 through 27, and it came to pass after two full years that Absalom had sheep shearers in Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim, so Absalom invited all the king's sons. Then Absalom came to the king and said, Kindly note, your servant has sheep shearers. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go now, lest we be a burden to you. Then he urged him, but he would not go, and he blessed him. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom urged him, so he let Amnon and all the king's sons uh, go with him. It's clear from this section that the harm intended had been premeditated. In fact, uh, verse 32 indicates this had probably been planned from the time of the rape. Uh, He was just looking for an occasion to do this. And people think, how could a son of David, how could a Christian, how could a person who's grown up in the church ever even think of doing something like this? Well, William Secker said he that carries bitterness to bed with him will find the devil creep between the sheets. That's how close the demonic will be to you when you allow bitterness to continue day after day. Let me read that again. He that carries bitterness to bed with him will find the devil creep between the sheets. Now, why does he say that? He said it because the Apostle Paul indicates that when you allow anger and bitterness, those two things in your life, to go, let the sun go down on your wrath, you are giving a, the literal Greek is you are giving a foothold to the devil, to the demonic. The demons can begin working, legally working uh, in your life and trying to poison you uh, if you do not confess those sins. And since Satan is a murderer from the beginning, it's not surprising that he motivates people to desire that form of revenge as well. Okay, the fourth thing that I see is that Absalom is not the only one who was poisoned by bitterness. Hebrews 12:15 says, "Looking carefully, lest any one fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled." Bitterness has this tendency to infect others. And Absalom's bitterness 
against Amnon made his men quite willing to do what he commanded. He had no doubt talked with his uh, men about uh, what uh, Amnon had, had done. But verse 28, Now Absalom had commanded his servants, saying, Watch now, when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, when I say to you, Strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not be afraid. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and valiant. Almost sounds like the words from Joshua's lips, doesn't it? In Joshua chapter 1. Absalom's thinking really is skewed here. He treats the action as being consistent with courageousness and being valiant. People who are bitter, they're blind. They think they're pretty spiritual. They think everything they're doing is uh, 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 quite, quite right. And he treats this murder as a virtue. He's probably thinking, hey, this is a tough thing to do, but somebody's got to do it. And if my dad is not willing to defend justice, I'm going to defend justice. I'm going to take justice into my own hands. And so the very way he words this shows that he is excusing this as a good deed, but his secrecy shows he doesn't really believe it's a good deed. Deep down inside, he knows it's a bad deed. So it shows self-deception that his judgment is skewed. But the men who hang around uh, uh, Absalom, they have somehow become infected by Absalom's attitudes, and for them it makes sense as well. Now, was Amnon a criminal? Yes, he was. Uh, Did Amnon deserve the death penalty? Yes, he did. But I think these servants, if they really thought about it, would recognize and admit that this was not their function. This is the function of the civil court and of the executive office. It was not theirs to carry out. But the, bitter, uh, the bitterness of Absalom had defiled them, and that's what Hebrews 12, 15 guarantees will happen. Many other believers will become defiled by our bitterness, and it will spread, spread, spread if we do not pluck it up by its roots. Verse 9 shows that bitterness can lead to murder. Verse 9. It's not verse 9. Verse 29. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, and each one got on his mule and uh, fled. The bitterness of Cain led him to kill his brother. The bitterness of Dinah's brothers over the rape of their sister led them to murder an entire city. Went way overboard. They didn't just, uh, you know, uh, get even with this one, one man. David's bitterness over what Nabal had done to him and to his people, spurning them, they had spent an entire season uh, uh, protecting their flocks and, and, and serving Nabal. And the way he treated them made him bitter and made him almost uh, kill off an entire household. That's King David. Joab's bitterness over the loss of his brother led him to murder Abner. The disciples' bitterness over the mistreatment that a Samaritan village had given to Jesus and to them made them ask Jesus if they could have permission to call down fire from heaven to destroy the entire village. I mean, Jesus could see the bitterness that was in, uh, that was in their hearts. Don't think that bitterness is a cute little pet that you can safely harbor. It is a monster that has murder on its mind. And even if it's not outward murder, it'll be murder of reputation. It'll be destruction of a person's position. 
or his office. Recognize that bitterness is demonic. It comes straight from the pit of hell. Do not cherish it. Learn to hate it. And if you recognize that it has murder on its heart, maybe you won't uh, just treat it like a pet and caress it and cherish it. You know, this is a 50-foot spider that you are caressing, you know, and saying, this is my pet. He won't do me any harm. Now, in verses 29 through 39, we see that bitterness also leads to alienation. (coughs) And uh, I've already read uh, some of those verses. um, Verse 30, and it came to pass while they were on the way that news came to David saying Absalom was killed, has killed all the king's sons, not one of them is left. So the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the ground, and all his servants stood by with their clothes torn. Then Jonadab, the son of Shemiah, David's brother, answered and said, Let not my lord suppose they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for only Absalom is dead. For by the command of Absalom this has been determined from the day that he forced his sister Tamar. Now therefore let not my lord, the king, take the thing to his heart to think that all the king's sons are dead, for only Amnon is dead. Then Absalom fled. And the young man who was keeping watch lifted his eyes and looked, and there many people were coming from the road on the hillside behind him. And Jonadab said to the king, Look, the king's sons are coming, as your servant said, so it is. So it was, as soon as he had finished speaking, that the king's sons indeed came, and they lifted up their voice and wept. Also the king and all his servants wept very bitterly. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amihud, king of Geshur, and David mourned for his son every day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And King David longed to go to Absalom, for he had been comforted concerning Amnon because he was dead. Throughout this section, we see that Absalom has risked losing everything by killing his brother. He had alienated all of his other brothers. They're never going to trust him again. Uh, But he had alienated himself from his dear sister Tamar, from his father and his mother, from the kingdom as a whole. Now, obviously, in part, it's because... He is a, a, a fleeing criminal, a fugitive. But really, this alienation is what always happens uh, when bitterness is allowed in our hearts. People don't like to hang around you when you're a bitter person unless they have become infected with your bitterness as well. Then birds of a feather do like to hang together. But you can see that where grace and love bind the church together, when you've got bitterness... It sheds love and grace like water off a duck's back. And um, they no longer enjoy the fellowship of the saints. It drives us apart. It alienates. Well, the last thing that I see with regard to Absalom is that while others can forgive and move on, and you look at verse 39, you see David did forgive. He was ready to move on. The bitter person can't forgive, and as a result, he becomes more and more sapped of God's graces. And in the next chapter, we see Absalom getting worse and worse uh, as time goes on until it is impossible to reclaim him. And this is really, to me, the scariest aspect of bitterness because we can sink so deep into the pit of malice and hatred and anger and self-pity that it's impossible for us to escape. We don't want to escape. We don't want others to help us to escape. We want to be there. We start acting like an unbeliever. And if you don't think that that can happen to you, I want, you, I want to tell you the story of Rosalind Goforth, uh, the wife of the famous uh, Presbyterian uh, missionary to China, Jonathan Goforth. You've heard about him, but this is about his wife. In her autobiography, Climbing, Rosalind Goforth told of the internal rage that she harbored in her 
heart against someone who had hurt both her and uh, her husband. It was a serious injury. They never actually did uh, tell anybody what this injury was. All we know is it was a serious, uh, some kind of a serious hurt. Uh, while Jonathan was able to forgive the offender, uh, Rosalind refused to do so. For more than a year, she wouldn't even look at that person, let alone, she wouldn't even acknowledge he existed, um, even though that person lived on the same station with them in China. Four years passed, and the matter was still not resolved, and to me, it's just amazing how long this bitterness can linger on. Well, one day, the Gophors were traveling by train to a conference in China, and Rosalind recognized the absolute lack of joy and lack of power. She was just plodding on in her own physical strength. She did not have the power of the Spirit. She was not filled with the Spirit, as Paul commands us to be. And so she bowed her head in the train, and she cried out to God, Please, fill me with your Holy Spirit. And here's what she says. Unmistakably clear came the inner voice. Write to, and she leaves blank the one that she hated so much and refused to forgive, write to blank and ask forgiveness for the way you have treated him. My whole soul cried out, never. Again I prayed as before, and again the inner voice spoke clearly as before. Again I cried out in my heart, never, never, I will never forgive him. When for the third, third time this was repeated, I jumped to my feet and said to myself, I'll give it all up, for I'll never, ever forgive. Uh, one day afterward, Rosalind was reading to the children from Pilgrim's Progress, and it was the portion of the, uh, the story where there's this ragged, wretched man who is in a cage, uh, imprisoned, self-imprisoned, really. But the man moans, I have grieved the Spirit, and he is gone. I have provoked God to anger, and he has left me. Well, instantly, a terrible conviction came over her, and for two days and two nights, she was in terrible despair. Uh, finally, talking late one night to another fellow missionary, he was a young widower, she uh, burst into tears and just told him the whole sordid story. He was kind of puzzled, and he said, but Mrs. Goforth, are you willing to write the letter? And after a long pause, she said yes, and he said, well, well go right now at once and do it. Well, she jumped to her feet, ran into the house, and immediately wrote a few lines of humble apology uh, for her own actions without mentioning his sins. So she didn't say anything about his horrible sins against them. She just asked forgiveness for the sins that she had committed against him. And immediately the joy and peace of her Christian life returned. And she ends her testimony by saying, from that time on, I have never dared, I have never dared not to forgive. And if you are Rosalind, go forth. I would urge you, forgive. Just relinquish that bitterness and that animosity that you've harbored in your heart. Go to God for cleansing. You do not want to become like Absalom. And it's guaranteed you will become like Absalom if you do not get rid of that bitterness. If you do not tell the Lord, Lord, this is a wickedness, an exceedingly great wickedness. This is an enemy. I want to be rid of this bitterness forever. If you don't have his supernatural love and his grace, you will become just like Absalom. And I know every excuse in the book as to why your bitterness is different and why you have a right to have that bitterness. 
I know because I've been bitter in the past, and I've rationalized with the Holy Spirit as to why uh, I do not need to put that off. And I'm thankful for my dear wife who has pointed out, Phil, it looks like you're being overcome by evil rather than overcoming evil with good. And I've said, you're right, we need to deal with this. I don't know who wrote it, but somebody said, no matter how long you nurse a grudge, it won't get better. (laughs) And you don't want it to get better. You want to kill it. You don't want that nurse to get better. So stop nursing your grudges. Now, I don't have the time to go through all of the steps for putting off bitterness, but you can download my booklet on bitterness from Biblical Blueprints. But psychology will not help you. Sigmund Freud died at the age of 83, a very bitter and disillusioned man who could not maintain any friendships. He wrote in 1918, I have found little that is good about human beings on the whole. In my experience, most of them are trash. And I could give you similar testimonies from other psychologists. They couldn't even help themselves. Psychology will never get you past that bitterness. It is a powerless religion. Only the cross of Christ can cleanse, and only the power of the Holy Spirit can replace bitterness with His supernatural love. Ignoring bitterness will not help. Dr. Spock was known as the guru of child rearing, and in his humanistic philosophy, he just thought, you know, if you just leave these things alone, uh, over time they will resolve themselves. Yeah, right. His kids turned out absolutely horrible. He raised a brood of brats that were bitter against him and he against them. And uh, even though I cannot say everything that needs to be said for putting off bitterness, let me quickly outline six steps given by the Apostle Paul. First of all, forgive. You may not feel like it. You probably won't feel like it. But that's why it takes faith to forgive. You do it because God commands you. Second, refuse to bring that situation back to your mind. Resist your heart's attempts to resurrect that pain. Resist the demonic attempts to needle you and resurrect that pain in your mind and say, get behind me, Satan. I am not going to think about these things because I have buried that under the cross of Christ. I will not blaspheme the blood of Christ by digging that up. Third, pursue peace. This is the true test of whether that bitterness is still there. Can you hang around that person without getting bitter again? Some people deceive themselves into thinking that they've really dealt with their bitterness. Yeah, they deal with their bitterness by not being around that person any longer. That's humanism. That is not the cross of Christ. There's nothing supernatural about that. Pursue peace is what Paul says to people who are bitter. Love your brothers and your sisters. Fourth, Paul admonishes us to put on tenderness and kindness. Now, our flesh, I I guarantee you, our flesh wants to pound that other person. But Romans 12, verse 9, through the end of the chapter, gives a whole bunch of ways in which you can do this in which you cannot be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Fifth, thank God every day for that person. Thank Him for trusting you with your reactions to that person. Thank God that He is using that person to cause you to grow in His grace. Thank God that He is a believer going to heaven. Think of everything you could possibly think about to thank God for about that person. It's an action of faith. And then sixth, start praying blessings into that person's life. They don't deserve to be blessed, but then neither do you. None of us really deserve to be blessed. And so ask God to bless that person. Say, Lord, I want you to give that person a raise. I want you to bring joy into that person's life. I want you to bring uh, salvation to that person if they're an unbeliever. 
Uh, I want you to bless them in this way, in that way. And the first few times you do that, it will feel like gravel in your mouth. But if you persevere, I guarantee you, it will turn into sweet oil with the savor and the fragrance of heaven all about it. Your stepping into the supernatural will restore grace after grace into your heart. So bless those who curse you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for his sake. Bless and do not curse. Yes, even if it's your spouse, bless and do not curse, okay? Now, if you take those six steps, you will find remarkable changes happening to your heart. You're going to find a new closeness to God, new power, new insight, new ministry opportunities opening up, new joy, new meaning in life. Bitterness robs us of everything good that Jesus purchased for us. And when you refuse to get better and instead you trust Jesus to live his life through you, you enter into the joy of the Lord. C.S. Lewis once said, everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. Well, God has put stories like this into the Bible uh, to let us know that he understands the pains that we go through, but to also assure us he does not approve of our bitterness. So rise and conquer and enter into the joy of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father God, we ask that your word would do its work in our lives, sanctifying us, causing us to enter into the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. Satan would do everything he can to rob us of that joy so that we do not have the strength of the Lord. And I pray, Father, that uh, you would enable each one here to recognize the stratagems of Satan and to defeat him, uh, to vanquish his efforts uh, to make them bitter. Cause us to rise uh, with the the victory of your cross and uh, to enter into the joy of the Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.